Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 14. With Joseph Bienvenu and Joseph Makos. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. Alright, so we have a few more pieces we wanted to talk about. Wow, it's a long list. We got a long list here. Alright, we're not going to spend long on this Hindu myth, I think. It's it's not that good of a piece. I do like him, though, as a composer. And Well, and it's kind of doubly on both ends. It's not a good poem. It's, it's Rilke. I love Rilke. Especially the Duino elegies. Sonus to Orpheus are nice as well. Uh, this is his Life of Mary. Where he wrote this uh, series of poems that were like retelling the Virgin Mary's life. I mean, he was Catholic, although he had a very weird kind of Catholicism. And maybe that's the part that's most interesting about these poems. It's not as interesting as the way religion gets treated in his other poems, which is super mystical and like this kind of escape from despair. But like recognizing despair is part of human existence which is kind of more the way Rilke normally goes. This is maybe not as interesting of his religious sort of experience, but it's still kind of interesting. I guess sort of part of the idea was he never really liked how Mary was treated in the stories when he when he learned those as a child. He always thought she was portrayed as too meek and subservient, so he wanted to write The Life of Mary where... She was the she was quiet because of like her serenity and understanding. So I guess that was kind of the idea. Not my favorite Rilke poems either. Just like, even though I love Rilke, just like I think you kind of feel about the Hindemith here. Not the best Hindemith work as much as you might yeah, like Hindemith. Uh, well, the the best Hindemith stuff. I mean, is the stuff that because he was obsessed with like medieval composing. You know, like the beginning of composing and like that gothic medieval like sound and this this completely this is not like that at all it's it's very traditionally honestly i mean i tried listening to a little it's it's super like it kind of feels romantic like like, late romantic i was gonna say it feels like which is i guess what that stuff is imitating kind of feels like when you go to a church and they like have just sort of hastily arranged things to be sung to fit into a ceremony or something. You know, it kind of feels like that stuff. Yeah, and his great stuff was... The the stuff he was the most passionate about was, like, ancient, you know, like, Gregorian chant, ancient ancient music and, like, real medieval and ancient music. And that's, like, what he's better at doing. Because that's what he was into more. You get that... Feeling, but he is a great composer. I don't want to say anything bad about. I really like him a lot, and it's impressive that he did he did that. And I, I mean, I don't know when he died. I, I think it must have been like maybe the sixties or seventies. I mean, he he lived through when it was just all atonal and like completely out of fashion what he was doing, and he just was, he didn't care about what <laughs> anyone was doing, and I really admire that too. He was just like, I'm just going to do what I like. And he became really successful. And it's really, really wrote a lot of really great things. But So we won't spend any more time on that. Yeah. But we just wanted to mention that that's another another piece with a poetry connection there. All right. Now maybe on to some things we might have. Uh, what are you going to move on to? Better things to say about. Well, I guess let's the go. Benjamin Britten. Yeah, let's go to Benjamin Britten here. Yeah. Um, I love. Rambo so much. So yeah, so this is Benjamin Britten's uh, piece based on the Illuminations, on yeah. Rambo's Illuminations. So go, yeah, now you can say. Yeah, I love, I love Benjamin Britten is a a great composer. He's a I I like him a lot. This, I love the more instrumental parts, the parts that were sung of this poem I wasn't like when the singing came in of the poem I wasn't as yeah, much yeah I had to agree when I was yeah. trying to listen to it I really liked it 
the instrumental the parts. Yeah, like, yeah, this is okay, but <laughs> yeah, it seemed it seemed like he just tried to fit it, which is the terrible thing about a lot of people. Like it would have been way better, I feel like, if it was just music instead of him trying to use the poem. Rambo didn't write in a way that it lended itself to be lyrics, really, like to a song. You'd have to write in like a meter form or like some structure, you know, that it it has. You, do you understand what I'm saying? No, I kind of know what you're saying. Although, from my understanding of this piece, he kind of picked and chose pieces. It's not like he just picked a poem and he just mashed it together. But so, so yeah. the first sentence of the piece is taken from the from the and it's in English, right? The ones parade. I listen yeah. to are in English. And the first the first sentence is taken from Parade, and it says, "I alone have the key to this savage parade." And I, it seems like he felt like that spoke to him about the creative process or something in this in some way. I don't know. I mean, I I, I think there's a lot of nice things about it, but yeah, I, the, I have to the agree. Op- the, the the instrumental parts are s- yes, really. I feel like capture. Like from, because I borrowed that Rambo biography from you and never gave it back. <laughs> yeah, where is that, by the way? <laughs> I don't know. And it did capture like the aesthetic of Rambo. It kind of felt like, but yeah, I so, don't know. We yeah. don't have to like. I, I don't want to say anything bad about no, it. No, no. I think no. I I still like it, and I think, and maybe we're doing a little disservice because it's not the vocals aren't bad. I mean, listening to some of the other vocal pieces there's one other one that i think is better but i think it's hard to do that i think that's really difficult and i think a lot of when we're talking about composers writing things based on poems it's generally more successful when you don't actually use the words of the poem well, schubert was able to do it yeah, some people some people are. can but i think yeah. it's really difficult um, yeah you really have to be a master of of the voice but then if you talk about things like 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 the Ravel or like the, where they don't use the words that sometimes is maybe in a better direction to go where you're yeah you doing have it in to a more be abstract sense rather yeah, than um, WC yeah because yeah. if you are gonna use words you have to do them simply you know that which we're gonna go into well we're gonna the, go to the next one but yeah. let's let, let's talk a little bit about the illuminations while okay we're yeah, here. yeah talk um, to it because yeah, I yeah, think yeah. most people when they think of Rimbaud think of a season in hell which do they yeah I think so and I think that's fair I mean I love a season in hell that's probably my favorite but um, was that the last thing he wrote one of the last things well that's part of the controversy. A lot of people want it to be the last thing because of the way Season in Hell ends and they want it to be like, okay, because he seems like he's renouncing poetry, right? And like, and then he goes off and, you know, sells coffee and weapons and, you know, Far East. So it's like... And gets his legs he, chopped off. As far as like his, as far as like the romantic story, people want it to be that way. But um, there's there's some, there's some disagreement about that. But it actually seems like probably at least parts of the Illuminations were written after Season in Hell, if if not all of it. We don't really know because the kind of manuscript history is kind of strange. The story is, after Verlaine got out of prison, when he shot Rimbaud in the arm, he, um... <laughs> it wasn't the hand? I think it was the arm, huh? Maybe you're right. But after, well, you know, he was in prison for that. So apparently when he got out, Rimbaud... The way Verlaine tells it, at least, but he's not the most reliable person. Rimbaud just kind of handed him this stack of loose papers, which was the manuscript for the Illuminations, and said, "Find a publisher for this." And you know, years later, he I think I think it got published in a magazine first, and I don't. It took a while for it to actually get published as a book. So it's kind of a little difficult to figure out exactly when it was written in comparison to everything. But uh, it seems like kind of the consensus is getting to be more that at least some of it was written after. Uh, it's very different from Season in Hell in some ways. I mean, there's some of that same things there, but it's less rebellious. It's less... It's kind of got a more philosophical bent to it, I would say. Although it's still got this sort of wild imagery, this sort of... the Which, you know, the, the thing that made Rimbaud the precursor to surrealism in a way where, he, you know... 
if you didn't know any better, you'd think he was in the midst of all of that, right? Because of the way he uses this wild imagery. It's still, and he did that even when he was young, yeah, too. Yeah. Like, his early poems are... He had, like, that... It seemed like he always had that weird... That voice, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, and well, and I mean, that's another thing, like you're saying, the voice. He's also got that very, like... It's very authoritative, but also very theatrical in some ways at the same time and not in a bad way theatrical but I mean it, it's it's very like it, well it's also I think the thing and I'm not a poet in any way but the the thing I most like about Rambeau is not that he's rebellious it's that it like goes past being a rebel or being rebellious like people coin him to be it's just like he doesn't believe in any of this shit. It's like yeah. he 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 basically is like. Well, he's I don't, kind of like. He's like he's like I don't believe in this so much that I'm gonna like say all these things about it that like make it the opposite way of what it means. Well, and that's his like what that's his famous quote was his goal with his poetry was rational derangement of the senses right? <laughs> and he does it perfectly that's amazing that it's exactly what he yeah. does and that's like not rebellion that's like just like disbelief of something it's not like you're re- when you're rebelling against something you still kind of believe in something yeah. else it's like a true detachment from like belief in itself of anything and i and and then like kind of making these things around it it's so it's just beautiful and it's amazing to me yeah but these are more like they're shorter mostly they're mostly prose poems although there's a couple that have line breaks read read yeah i was gonna read i was gonna read a couple just to give some sense but i mean they're i mean they're wonderful but they're just very different from a season in hell all right, this one, I kind of like this one just because the imagery is, to me, very wonderful in it. I'm reading these from, I, I do like this translation, Enid Rhodes' special translation. But this is number 26, Winter Festival. The waterfall resounds behind the sheds of the opera comique. The girandoles prolong in the orchards and the lanes bordering the meandering stream, the greens and the reds of the sunset, Horatian nymphs with hair dressed in the First Empire style, Siberian roundelays, Chinese women by Boucher. Let's read maybe one more. That was a short one, but I mean, it gives you some sense of the kind of pulling together of all this different sorts of imagery here. It's definitely lighter. I can see that. Yeah. Well, and maybe that one doesn't give a sense, but some of them kind of has this sort of these sort of almost laconic kind of statements that are you, they're kind of philosophical, like saying how life works. So a lot of people... This one's a little longer, but let's read this one. A lot of people think this is the best. Okay. This is number 40. Genie. He is affection in the present since he has made the house open to frothy winter and to the hum of summer. He who has purified drink and food... He who is the charm of transitory places and the superhuman delight of stopping places. He is affection and the future, strength and love, which we, standing within our rages and ennuis, see passing in the stormy sky and the flags of ecstasy. He is love, perfect in reinvented measure, marvelous in unforeseen reason and eternity. Beloved engine of fatal qualities, we have all experienced the terror of his concession and of ours, O oh, rapture of our health, transport of our faculties, egotistical affection and passion for him, for him who loves us for his unending life, and we recall him, and he travels, and if the adoration goes away, rings, his promise rings, away these superstitions, these ancient bodies, these households, and these ages, is it the epoch which is founder? He will not go away, he will not redescend from a heaven, He will not accomplish the redemption of women's rages and of men's gaieties and of all this sin, for it is done because of his being and his being loved. Oh, his breaths, his brains, his journeys, the astounding swiftness of the perfection of forms and of action. Oh, fecundity of the spirit and immensity of the universe, his body, the dreamed of deliverance, the shattering of grace met with new violence, his presence, his presence, all the ancient genuflections and the penalties released in his wake. 
his day, the abolition of all resonant and moving sufferings is more intense music, his step, migrations more enormous than the ancient invasion, oh he and we, the pride more benevolent than the lost charities, O world, in the clear song of new misfortunes, he has known us all and has loved us all. May we know this winter night from cape to cape, from the tumultuous pole to the castle, from the crowd to the beach, from glances to glances, strengths and tired feelings, how to hail him and to see him and to send him away and under the tides into the top of the wastelands of snow to follow his ideas, his breaths, his body, his day. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a little different. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot different. Yeah. But it's still nice. It's still nice. So, Rimbo. And, you know, I did think, you know, we don't want to spend time there. Other people have written some pieces on Rimbo as well. You could talk about them. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe I didn't write them all down. But John Zorn was one which is kind of straddling between the worlds of classical music and jazz, I guess. But uh, he he has a whole album of Rimbaud. Some that some are pieces based on Season in Hell, some on Illuminations. There's one on a drunken yeah. boat. Um, There's the the thing we did. And we did. Well, yeah, we did. yeah you we, can put that in the a, links. We can put that in the links as well. We yeah, did yeah. A, a piece on and, Rimbaud, and the, a season also, and Hell. Also, uh, on BBC Radio 4 or 3, they did one, two. And it's not very... It, it's kind of retarded. I I have to say, I mean, some parts of it are pretty good, but some of it, it's just too literal. It's what I was talking about. I think ours is much better because it's just yeah. red and then I'm just playing piano behind it and it's not as literal like where you do like <laughs> vocal effects to the reading and then have people like sing like lyrics to it in like 60s pop format. Well, you know, it's funny because like, <laughs> it's like I uh, mean, we're talking about these and there's certainly examples outside of classical music but it's strange to me that everyone goes in the vocal direction when they have the words. Like, you don't really get people just reading the poems on top of the classical music. That often. Sometimes they do. Yeah, sometimes. Oh, and I guess we could have it in the links, too, is the thing I did with Sylvia Plath reading her. Yeah. Yeah, which is another. Yeah. Yeah, she reading on the BBC uh, aerial poems. And I love her. I know yeah. you're you're not the hugest fan, but I think no, she's No, I incredible. like Sylvia Plath, but yeah. I think she's incredible and that that her work changed my life. And doing that music too really affected me. Like having to listen to her because if you listen to it, I uh it's music to her reading. And yeah, and her readings are really I like the recordings of her readings a lot. Yeah. I love I love her. Just like throwing that in there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we talked about um, using using vocals, and I think the next piece that we're going to talk about is maybe one of the ones where they did the best job of using the lyrics of the poem in vocals. We're going to talk about Elliot Carter's Voyage. And this is based on the... Hart Crane's poems Voyages and I, like like I said I'm gonna he actually uses the lyrics of the poem so maybe we should just read the poem first read the section that he used at least which he uses the third section here infinite consanguinity it bears this tender theme of you that light retrieves from sea plains where the sky resigns abreast that every wave enthrones while ribboned water lanes I wind are laved and scattered with no stroke, wide from your side, where to this hour the sea lifts also reliquary hands. And so, admitted through black swollen gates that must arrest all distance otherwise, past whirling pillars and lithe pediments, light wrestling there incessantly with light star kissing star through wave on wave unto your body rocking and where death if shed presumes no carnage but this single change upon the steep floor flung from dawn to dawn the silken skilled transmemberment of song permit me voyage love into your hands yeah 
And I mean, wow. Go read all the parts of Voyages for sure if you haven't read them all. Hart Crane is incredible American Absolutely. poet. Yeah. And this is an and that's and that's an amazing poem. And he wrote it over the course of years. That I mean, he spent a really long time writing that poem. And I mean, I think you can tell even from the section we read it's it's a, it's a love poem. He had fallen in love with this sailor, Emil, this blue-eyed sailor. And so he kind of got it in his head to kind of make this com- this beautiful comparison between like the sea and and love and what and what that means and not in a simplistic way and it's 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 really kind of I mean it can be dark and dangerous, right? But this it's beautiful, but it's also got this 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 sense of the danger of that and the uncertainty of that as well, the same the same way of like sailing and the uncertainty of and the possibility of, of death and this danger, but in it also being this kind of the beauty of it being a transcendence of death in a way. And I think the idea of the voyage being this risk, right? Like this kind of thing. You're 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 shooting out into this uncertain world. But all that that implies that it's dangerous and beautiful, but it's also like that's part of what makes it beautiful is the uncertainty of it, right? To me, it seems like the piece is about... Yeah, when you listen to it, it's... I have to say, Elliot Carter is one of my top American composers. Definitely, he's up at the top. I have to say that this is one of his... Not his earliest works, but pretty early it's up pretty there. Early, yeah. It's in the 40s. What did we right? see? It's 1943? Yeah, so yeah. the 40s. So it's really before he really developed his sound. You can definitely but hear you the can see You can part, definitely yeah, hear the ocean. Yeah. yeah. You can definitely hear the ocean and the different things. The It's definitely more traditional. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. For him, you know. Uh, well, it's it is it's very traditional. It's it's still really good. It's just his other work I like more. Not even like directly after this. Some of his works from the fifties are yeah. I think the best things yeah. he wrote in his whole career. I agree. That's there was like a burst like, yeah. of stuff that he did when he was on holiday with his family. But uh, not to get off the subject too much. But the way I heard about Hart Crane was through Elliot Carter. Really? I studying, didn't know that, yeah. Yeah, studying Elliot Carter, and he talked about how much he loved Hart Crane, and I, this is the piece that you found, I believe that there's uh, a few other instrumentals that are instrumental, that are, that are based off of Hart Crane, Crane poems, yeah. but yeah. they're, they're not like directly, directly yeah, 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 but they are, but that was a huge uh, person that changed him because I know he talked a. There's um, a really great documentary on Elliot Carter, and I, that's where I heard him talk about uh, the bridge and like a few other ones and like walking past the bridge that he knew he was writing about because uh-huh. he's from New York. Yeah, and like re like kind of retracing his steps and like seeing everything in the imagery and being heavily influenced by him. Well, I didn't know when I was reading, but I didn't know this, but apparently when Elliot Carter was at Harvard, he majored in English. Oh, really? Which I did not know that he didn't major in music. He majored in English. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. The other, the other people that have done the same thing is, uh, John Cage also majored in English. Okay, I First, didn't know that, yeah. yeah. First, he was going to be a writer. And then both, I think both kind of did the same thing because I know Elliot Carter went on a trip with his father to Europe and it was before World War One, and John Cage is, was younger, but he also went on a trip with his father to Europe and changed the composition, like changed... Because they both played music. Yeah. You know, yeah, but well, they, they switched but yeah, their yeah. major. But yeah, John Cage was also I don't know, I heavily into I literature. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and, and we're going to revisit Hart Crane for sure. But I mean, we could, couldn't pass up. Oh, yeah. Elliot Carter and Hart Crane, I think that they definitely, you can tell just by the words by Elliot Carter speaking about Hart Crane, it's like, it it's an otherworldly person and 
the influence on his music from Hart Crane is huge, huge, and just writing in general. I, I, I mean, even if it's well, indirectly. Well, no, and I mean, yeah, and I think Elliot Carter, to me, like, more than any other composer, feels very textual. There's always, like, texts intertwined in his compositions, even when it's not direct. I mean, it feels like there's this kind of, like, aspect of of quoting going on. Well, definitely he was, he was never really proficient on any instrument. He is incredibly intelligent, and it's just given. You can, you can tell he's very well read, very much on the intellectual side, but not in like a obtuse, like ridiculous way, like a real way of like being like really caring, not like in a, in a way that's pseudo intellectual. He like really cares yeah, about yeah, what he's saying, yeah. and. The way his music works, I know he when he developed his style, like when he the style that he kind of stuck in and that he really pushed music towards was definitely language driven because he talked a lot about having people having he wanted it to have this feeling about like people in a room having a bunch of conversations at the same well, time yeah, and they through, all yeah. And, yeah. and then sometimes they all come together. But sometimes they're like like apart and 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 they're they're so there's you can focus on different conversations at the same time. But it, it was like that, and a lot of a lot of the things that he spoke about when you hear him describe his music is very much based off of of language and and literature and and just people talking in the street or at a party or. In, in a space or he was obsessed with those ideas and just people in general yeah. like walking down the street talking and one being further away and then one coming closer and all the and then and then like they all start talking at the same time and it matches and these these things he he's very much and very much obsessed with literature you can definitely tell too because he he uh talked about a great deal he read a great deal you can obviously tell that too oh yeah well and a strange thing to take it circular you said the way you found heart cream was through elliot carter the way i learned about elliot carter was through frank o'hara frank o'hara loved uh loved elliot carter which is also funny considering the whole what place we started with this poem because i'm pretty sure if i'm remembering correctly when Frank O'Hara first saw, he saw a performance of Elliot Carter's, which I think you said there weren't that many performances, really. No. This is in the 50s, I think. Yeah. And, um, there weren't. They but, were, like, at, like, probably Juilliard or, like, But I'm pretty somewhere. sure the reason, he, he was in, Frank O'Hara was in the Navy at the time, strangely enough, with this being a, a, a poem of Hart Crane being in love with a sailor. Um and he was on he was on leave and he happened to go to this show this this that performance was probably of free. Carter yeah. yeah and <laughs> and then af- ever after was in love with Elliot Carter's music and followed followed it the rest of his life yeah <laughs> also my friend uh, was talking about Elliot Carter because they did the he went to Juilliard and they and that's where Elliot Carter taught. And uh, they did his, I think it was his bicentennial, when he turned 100 and he was still alive, uh, they did a concert for him. And uh, when, I, this is just extra thing, whatever. I think I kind of <laughs> find it kind of funny, but he talked about like the musicians that, you know, he went to school with that were playing it. We're talking about how... Uh, they were trying to ask him about it, or like they felt like it. They weren't playing it right because it's really, really complex music. Oh my god! And he was just like, yeah. he he. They just that's they said that they kind of like realized that he didn't even know what he made, like or he forgot what he even made because he was like that sounds great, and they were like definitely off from each other, and he didn't <laughs> even know. At that point, what he even made? How, what, what, how old was he at this point? I mean, he was in his... He was 100. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. 
But he was just like, that sounds great. <laughs> and and they were, you know, whatever. That is the way that he wrote, though. It's so based off of other things. Yeah. Then, then like, it's not like a tune that you one would hum. or It would be really would, hard. I mean, I can't even imagine how you would conduct something like that. They do it, yeah. I, yeah, I know, but I mean, it must just be like... <laughs> and, and, and also, I guess he might not have been looking at the score, but I don't know. He probably, like, also, like, kind of just wanted to hear it different. I don't know. There's so many interpretations of that I could take. But I guess the musicians, like, felt like he didn't even know what he wrote, which I'm like, Was who he, cares? wait, did he... Who even cares, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just funny that that's like the way that did he's he, described. Did did he? Am I remembering this wrong? Did he study with Charles Ives? Uh he did. He was friends with Charles Ives as a uh, as a young man, and he didn't so much study under him, but he did like try to help him with his music. He was he was a huge fan and tried to help him get concerts of his music and how and tried to help him like get his music out there and then. Also, he kind of... Charles Ives, they were friends, though. Even though he was, like, in his early 20s. Yeah. They were friends. And it was more like a friendship. I would say, you know, W.C. and uh, Eric Satie. Okay. Or something yeah, like that. They yeah. were friends. Even though he was... Charles Ives was a lot older. Charles Ives, we have to remember, gave up writing at that point And just was revising his stuff. Yeah. And making him more tonal. Which Elliot Carter was the person to tell him, like, this is wrong. You shouldn't do that. It sounds better. The, ori- the original idea yeah. is better. Yeah. And don't do this, you know. Because he was trying to make his stuff more accessible. And the weird thing about that, which this is, we're going on this whole <laughs> rant, whatever, uh, at this point. But his the reason that he met Charles Ives with his parents... Um, like had insurance bought insurance from Charles Ives. Oh, right. Charles Ives has a successful insurance company that still exists to this day, and they got their insurance from him. And then when Elliot Carter said that he was going to be a composer, they dropped their insurance from his company <laughs> that he created. Well, that just makes me want to find that company and get my insurance with, the <laughs> with that Elliot Carter's. Be, that used to be Charles I'm Ives. Charles Ives' company. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's. <laughs> It's Ives and, and the other man's name, but the reason Charles Ives also, I, I don't know why I know all this, I guess, I don't know, it's ridiculous, but Charles Ives went to the insurance business because you he said that you can't make any money making good music. Well, it's probably true. <laughs> you know, like making He's probably them, right about that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> like making real real music or good music or I don't I don't know some way of saying that like or the music that I want to make. Well, I think we only have really one other piece that we had to talk about. Okay. Which is oh, we're all the way into the 1950s, 1955. Pierre Boulet, Les Marteaux and Matre. I probably pronounced that totally wrong. The Hammer Without a Master, and this is based on René Char. You can read the poem. I love I love this music. Uh, I like these poems. So Rene Char is interesting because he kind of grew up. I don't remember what town he came from, but he was more like in the French countryside. But he moved to Paris just as the Surrealist movement movement was getting going. Uh, and he was like really one of the one of the major people in the early surrealist movement, but he gave it up pretty quickly because I think he just felt like it was too constricting of what was going on. He really just kind of left it pretty early on in the thirties, I think. Um, um, and he's probably like. I think, like, when he, like, you know, he's more remembered for his later poetry. Like, because he was in the, he was in the resistance, like, when, when French was occupied, he was, he was in the resistance. Like, he led a group of resistant uh, soldiers and they, like, helped coordinate parachute drops from the Allied, from the Allies and things uh, while, while, while France was occupied. 
So his poetry really kind of changed a lot after that, and in some ways became more conventional, although it's still really interesting, but it's more, but you know, he certainly moved far away from surrealism. And I kind of like, I mean, to the point where like, I think I remember seeing like when he died, like seeing his obituary and like Chirac or whoever like praised him as being a great French poet. There was like not even a single mention of surrealism in his in his obit, like just nothing. Although uh, I think you know it was just kind of a shame because I feel like he's. Well, do you want to be um, tied to a movement? Are you? Well, what no. I mean, I in? don't know, but I mean, I I feel like what movement are you in? I don't I don't have a movement, but I feel like uh, you know I feel like surreal, French surrealism was a pretty good movement to be a part of. And I know he left it and he wanted to leave it, but it's but I just thought it was kind of interesting that he was. Are there movements anymore? Yeah, there are. I mean, I guess not in this. It's hard for them to be in the same way, um, but there certainly are. So read the poem. But the point is, these poems that this piece are based on were in his surrealist period. Yeah, you can tell by the um, music. Yeah, <laughs> they're pretty. It's, yeah, it's pretty evident in that so it's basically based on these three um these these three pieces that are part of this other collection so um, i'm going to read these three short pieces the first one is the furious craftsmanship the red caravan on the edge of the nail and corpse in the basket and plow horses in the horseshoe i dream the head on the point of my knife peru yeah. Hangman of solitude. The step has gone away. The walker has fallen silent on the dial of imitation. The pendulum throws its instinctive load of granite. Stately building and presentiments. I hear marching in my legs. The dead sea waves overhead. Child, the wild seaside pier, man, the imitated illusion, pure eyes in the woods are searching in tears for a habitable heart. And those are the three pieces. Yeah. It's very beautiful. I like those poems. Yeah, they're really... I mean, it does well what I think surrealism should do well. I mean, it kind of gets this bad reputation sometimes of just throwing a bunch of images together. But people who do it well, obviously, are exercising a lot of control and using them to... I mean, kind of like you were talking about before, like, how do you use those things to create the unsaid? Right? How do you juxtapose these things in a way to yeah. create the unsaid? And he does a very good job of that in those, I think. Yeah, and it, it's tons of control. Because the same thing with... Boulez, in a similar manner, like, people would, if they just listened to his music, like, a lot of people would just think it was this crazy nonsense. And he is so amazing as a pianist and as a conductor, can do Mozart, you know, one of the greatest conductors ever, there ever was, like, the... He just died recently. One of the greater, greatest interpreters of Debussy or Wagner or all these people are Mahler. Great conductor. Great pianist. Knew everything. And his stuff is really strange in a way. Only in the sense... But he followed tradition only in the sense of progression of music. It's just like we have to catch up one day, you know, to what yeah. he's doing. <laughs> it's not... In no way is it just random, but I mean, that's, I think people that just listen to it would think it was just random, whatever. But I know that Frank Zappa was heavily influenced by him and... Okay, yeah, and, yeah, that and makes sense, yeah. A lot of, a lot of people, you know, but he was super, you listen to his music and you would never guess this, I guess. Um, but he was super traditional and, and really cared about the same thing with Arnold Schoenberg. He gets this bad rap about being this crazy mad man, scientist or whatever. But they're always the ones that push things the furthest are 
so obsessed with tradition and I think that that's like weirdly misunderstanding. Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense, but you can't do something like that without building it off of something, right? You can't just it has to be based on some kind of tradition in order for it to make any 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 sort of sense. And I mean, anyone doing anything that's like... I don't think necessarily that's true. Well, I think if you're trying to do anything on like the avant-garde edge of things, for multiple reasons. Like one, because the more... You still need a framework underneath, right? Like if you're pushing the edges of something, you still need a framework underneath. You need to be... And then also, if you're trying to push against something, you need to know what you're pushing against. And that's still going to create a negative structure underneath the way that you're pushing off against it, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I I definitely see what you mean. But I think that people also can do the same thing without any education or any knowledge of things and, and still, like, by intuition or whatever you want to call it, come to the same conclusions or go as far. Out. Yeah, but don't you think that what that intuition is actually giving them is intuition of that tradition in a lot of ways, right? Well, I are, are like, or, or they're just actual, you know, like, or you're tapping into the same thing that, that, in that, that tradition came out of. Maybe you're not aware of the are tradition there, directly. Are maybe there but it's are like, some people that look, are like actual how many geniuses. People, well, but maybe they're geniuses, but, but what I'm saying is for someone who, who understands that stuff, like there are some people who you could they could listen to those things a thousand times and not understand how they're working, like the traditional things and not understand how they're working. But then you've got other people that they could just hear it pa- in passing in the background and understand and understand. Yeah, how it yeah, works, no, right, right. You know, I think Robert Johnson. A lot of people did that. A lot of people that like died like younger or whatever. You, it's it's self evident. You know, it's like just there in it that you can hear that so you're right i I, that is that's like some weird thing it's like you study since you're four or like some people just can just do it just can understand and and push those boundaries and things well not that's not that that's necessary i just don't want to say that you can't because i've made that mistake before by uh, you know, really, really, really thinking that the only way that one could push something, push the boundaries of something was through, you know, which I definitely am that because I was just self-reflecting things. I am that person that have to study and study and study and study and study to, to push boundaries, uh, you know, but... Well, I, I definitely yeah. don't think that it's necessary because some people are born with... I don't think the study with, is necessary, but I do think understanding those things on some level is necessary. But maybe. some, I but think that some people Some people born, understand it without needing to, to work to understand it. They just it's like in their it. DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like in their essence of themselves. It's, it's just there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the one thing I think maybe we, we want to say is... When we think about composers working with poetry or using poetry's inspiration or however you want to think about this, what, well, I mean, what is the advantage of that? And what is, I mean, and this definitely goes both ways too. I think certainly poets use music as inspiration for their poems as well. What is kind of the advantage of this cross-pollination or whatever we want to call it? With poetry? Yeah. I think... And I can only speak for myself, and that poetry is our poets think differently, and novelists, and all these things. I think that as far as writing goes, poetry is the most interconnected to music. It's the, out of all the art forms, it's the one that, to me, m- matches up the best because you know if, if which Franz Liszt did with Faust if you want to try to, to make a symphony about like a long book you can try <laughs> but it's just like like 
and it works in a way. And then I know a lot of stuff, you know, with Romeo and Juliet and all yeah. these other things. And so they kind yeah, they kind of work, but it's not as well there together. I think that when I've always when I've read poetry too, I've always related to music, whether it was because of lyric lyrics or something in me. I've always related poetry the closest to music, which I actually, to be honest, I'm. And it's not because I like either one better than novels or anything else. Like, to be honest, the thing that I like the most, and I think it's the purest art form, is painting. But I just never, I just not, I don't know why I didn't go in that direction. But I, I actually think that that's the purest art form of, of all of them. But somehow music and poetry just seem like, like yeah, I think barely a point away. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, huh? But I mean, one thing actually, this came up last week in in our episode last week. But part of this is this. I mean, the tradition of poetry is certainly tied to music, right? I mean, that's how it began. I mean, you you can't really divorce it from that. It's Which part, you can see, yeah. and, and there's there's music in poetry. Yeah. There's music that's that exists in the language. It's musical. And you can't divorce it, you know. Yeah. It's already there in poetry. There's music. But I also think there's something about language too and the way I mean, you can talk about painting as having language, but it becomes very metaphorical, right? Where music, like, literally has language. <laughs> yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, it definitely um, does. It's literally the same kind of, like, it's the syntax building and... and It has a narrative structure. And you can do yeah. all the same similar things, you know, you can do with language, you can do with music. Definitely. Music is phrases, phrases, time, and mathematics which would I, I guess equate to time and also uh timbre and all I mean, these it's things almost, it's almost bizarre like you think of like i think we talked about this before but you talk about like some of the strange mathematical techniques of people composing music and there's almost exact correlating things in in poetry where people have done similar things of yeah. using math to like generate poetry or using there's just so it's so parallel and i think it yeah. is because of the the like language properties of and because well and why does that not happen in fiction because fiction isn't using language in the same way it's using language as communication yeah no, not definitely... as a, not as a material, right? Where, yeah. um, or I think poetry. I mean, I think that's where poetry separates from other kinds of language. Maybe he's using it as a material, and I mean, music. You have to you have to use everything that you're doing as a material in some way. Yeah, music and poetry both take you into a, another world that is. It's more like a world that you control, where fiction or Things like that. It's like a world that the 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 person is controlling. Oh, and oh, so maybe that's where we end here. Uh, because I didn't bring it up when we were talking about uh, about that piece, but uh, talking about Mallarmé and the impressionism and all of that. The story is since you mentioned painters, Mallarmé was friends with Degas, and yeah. uh, Degas decided he wanted to try and write some poetry. And he went to Mallarmé and he said, I don't understand I, I, why I can't write poetry. I have all these great ideas. And I can't, I can't turn them into any good poems. And Mallarmé said, but poetry isn't made out of ideas. It's made out of words. <laughs> right? And I think that's true. And maybe that's the place uh, where, where, where music and poetry intersect. Right? Poetry is made out of words. Music's Music made is of, made out of 
notes and the absence of notes. Yeah. And time. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that was, I think that was really interesting. Thank you for joining us today. And we're going to lead out with, uh, we're going to lead out with, uh, the recording that we did of Rimbaud's season in hell, uh, with the, with piano composition by Jeff and, uh, me reading the English translations of Rimbaud's poem. Deliriums, one. Foolish virgin, the infernal bridegroom. Let us listen to the confession of a companion in hell. O divine bridegroom, my lord, do not refuse the confession of the saddest of your maidservant. I am lost, I am intoxicated, I am impure. What a life! Forgiveness, divine lord, forgiveness. Ah, forgiveness, how many tears and how many tears again later I trust. Later I shall know the divine bridegroom. I was born submissive to him. The other one can thrash me now. At present, I am at the bottom of the world. Oh, my friends, no, not my friends, never deliriums or tortures like these. How senseless it is. I suffer, I cry out, I really do suffer. Everything, however, is permitted me charged with the contempt of the most contemptible hearts. Finally, let us make this disclosure. Even if we have to repeat it 20 times over, as dismal and as insignificant as it is, I am the slave of the infernal bridegroom. He who ruined the foolish virgins, he's surely that very demon. He's not a specter. He is not a phantom. But I, who have lost my discretion, who am damned and dead to the world, no one will kill me. How am I to portray him for you? I do not even know how to speak anymore. I'm in mourning. I weep. I am terrified. A little coolness, Lord, if you are willing, if you are truly willing. I am a widow. I was a widow. Yo, yes, I was quite serious once, and I was not born to become a skeleton. He was practically a child. His mysterious, delicate ways had seduced me. I fought my every human obligation in order to follow him. What a life. Real life is absent. We are not in the world. I go where he goes. I must. And often he loses his temper with me. Me, the poor soul. The demon. He's a demon, you know. He's not a man. He says, I don't like women. Love has to be invented over again, that's known. They can do no more than wish for a secure position. When that position has been gained, love and beauty are put aside. Nothing remains except frigid disdain, the sustenance of marriage nowadays. Or else I see women with the signs of happiness, of whom I could have made good companions, utterly consumed from the outset by brutes as sensitive as funeral piles. I listen to him turning infamy into glory, cruelty into charm. I'm of the far-off people. My ancestors were Scandinavians. They pierced their sides, drank their own blood. I will make gashes over my entire body. I will tattoo myself. I wish to become hideous as a Mongol. You'll see. I'll howl in the streets. I wish to become quite mad with rage. Never show me jewels. I would crawl and writhe on the carpet. My riches, I'd like them stained in blood all over. Never will I work. On some nights, this demon seizing me, we tumbled about. I wrestled with him. Often at night, drunk, he takes up his position in the streets or houses in order to terrify me to death. Someone will really behead me. It'll be disgusting. Oh, those days when he's determined to walk about with an air of crime. Every now and then he speaks in a kind of tender patois about death that brings repentance, about the unfortunates who certainly do exist, about painful toil, about separations that rend hearts. In the hovels where we'd get drunk, he would weep while contemplating those who surrounded us, the cattle of misery. He would raise drunkards to their feet in the dark streets. He felt the pity of a wayward mother for little children. He'd go away with the graciousness of a little girl on her way to catechism. 
He pretended to be enlightened about everything. Commerce, art, medicine. I followed him of necessity. I'd see the whole setting with which in his fancy he surrounded himself. Clothes, sheets, furniture. I lent him weapons, another guise. I saw everything which concerned him as he would have wished to create it for himself. When he seemed to me to be apathetic, I would follow him far myself in strange and complicated actions, good or bad. I was sure of never entering his world. Beside his dear sleeping body, how many hours of the nights have I kept watch, seeking the reason why he wished so much to escape from reality? Never did a man have a wish equal to it. I recognized without being apprehensive for him that he could be a serious danger for society. Does he perhaps possess secrets for transforming life? No, he's doing more than that, searching for them. I'd answer myself, in short, his charities bewitched and I'm its prisoner. No other soul would have sufficient strength, strength or despair to endure it, to be protected and loved by him. Besides, I never imagined him with another soul. One sees his own angel, never the angel of another, I think. I existed in his soul as in a palace which has been emptied so that no one should see a person so ignoble as you, that's all. Alas, I entirely depended on him. But what did he want with my dull and cowardly existence? He was not improving me if he wasn't killing me. Sadly vexed, I said to him sometimes, I understand you. He'd shrug his shoulders. Thus my sorrow, being unceasingly renewed, and finding myself more lost in my own eyes, as in the eyes of all who would have wished to stare at me, if I'd not been condemned forever to be forgotten by everyone, I hungered more and more for his kindness. With his kisses and his fond embraces, it was certainly a heaven, an overcast heaven which I entered, and where I would have wished to be left poor, deaf, dumb, blind. Already I was getting used to it. I regarded us as two good children, free to roam within the paradise of sadness. We suited one another. Quite moved, we toiled together, but after a poignant caress he would say, How odd this will seem to you when I'm no longer here, this which you've gone through. When you no longer have my arms upon your neck, nor my heart to rest on, nor these lips on your eyes, because I shall have to go away very far one day. Then I must help others. It's my duty, though it will be hardly pleasing, dear soul. At once I could foresee myself with him gone, in the clutch of vertigo, plunged into the most frightful darkness, death. I made him promise that he wouldn't cast me off. He made it twenty times this promise of a lover. It was as frivolous as my saying to him, I understand you. I've never been jealous of him. He will not leave me, I think. What's to become of him? He hasn't one acquaintance. He'll never work. He wants to live as a somnambulist. Would his goodness and his charity alone get him any claim in the real world? Off and on, I forget the painful state into which I've sunk. He'll make me strong. We shall travel, hunt in wildernesses. <laughs> we'll sleep on the pavements of unknown towns without cares, without troubles. I'll wake up and laws and morals will have changed thanks to his magic power. The world remaining the same will lead me to my desires, my joys, my nonchalant ways. Oh, the adventures life that exists in children's books. Will you give it to me to repay me? Have I suffered so much? He cannot. I do not know his ideal. He's told me he has regrets, hopes. It's not likely to concern me. Does he speak to God? Perhaps I ought to appeal to God. I'm at the very bottom of the abyss and I no longer know how to pray. If he explained his sorrows to me, would I understand them better than his railleries? He attacks me. He spends hours making me ashamed of everything that has been able to move me in this world and is indignant if I weep. 
You see that elegant young man entering the fine and serene house. His name is Duval, Dufour, Armand, Maurice, for all I know. A woman devoted herself to loving this worthless fool. She's dead. She's most certainly a saint in heaven at present. You will kill me as he killed that woman. That's our lot assigned to us, the loving hearts. Alas, he has days when all active men seem to him the playthings of grotesque deliriums. He would laugh frightfully for a long time. Then he'd resume his demeanor of young mother, a beloved sister. If only he were less wild, we should be saved. But his sweetness also is deadly. I'm submissive to him. I'm insane. One day, perhaps, he'll disappear miraculously. But I must know if he's likely to rise to some heaven again so that I may view briefly the assumption of my little lover. A strange melange.